Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Well, I um, was really excited too because I'm kind of a Bible nerd (laughs) and I've had my struggles with it, which I'm going to share with you this morning. So we are wrapping it up. This is the last week. And um, so I have the privilege, but also kind of the scary task of trying to bring some things together. And part of uh, what we wanted to do the last few weeks was just have different people come up and share their story of how they read the Bible. So that's mostly of what I'm going to share. Now, at Cascade, we believe the Bible does have a role in informing our spiritual lives. But we do acknowledge there's a problem, as you've noticed. <laughs> there is a huge problem that, that's happening in our understanding of, of the scripture. And so, um, you know, we've, we've lost sight of the real purpose of sacred text. Um, and because it's been misused and uh, weaponized, um, I can understand why so many avoid reading the Bible. There are too many triggers too many questions that are not being asked, and there's been a lot of damage. Biblicism is rooted in the need for certainty and in the belief that the human mind is capable of accurately um, portraying and explaining God. That's not just an elevation of the Bible above God. It's actually an elevation of the human mind above God. And the idol, so the idol's not really the Bible, it's us. Until we let go of certainty and accept human fallibility and limitation, we're going to continue to misread the Bible. The way it's written forces us to wrestle with the text, a text that at times um, can be really maddening because it can sound so um, ambiguous at the same time that it sounds clear. It can feel, um, well, it can be just confusing um, because it teaches or it appears to teach competing doctrines and they're held in tension like this rope that's being pulled in two different directions. And then it's intimidating because it's an ancient document that's written in at least two dead languages from a culture that's really, I mean, totally foreign from our culture today. Reading the Bible takes a lot of work. We, um, we all need help in reading the Bible, and that's why it's so important that we do this in community, because there's no one perspective that's going to get it totally right. And every generation is going to bring a, a, a new set of experiences to the text. And I have a feeling that um, sometime in the future, my grandchildren are going to look back on my faith and say, oh, Nana. How did you get it so wrong? (laughs) I know they're going to say that. (laughs) So there are a lot of things. Now, the Bible isn't. The Bible isn't an owner's manual for how to leave or how to have Jesus in the driver's seat. Okay? It isn't an instruction book called God and Holy Living for Dummies, even though I know I feel that way a lot. (laughs) It's more like a journal. Not quite as fun as the wimpy kid, but it's a record book of humans over time growing in their understanding of God 
and how to experience this relationship with God and then with each other. And the journal doesn't end with the Bible. We have church history books that are filled with stories of people evolving in their faith. And we still have to figure it out and evolve ourselves. But I still believe that the Bible is crucial to that process. My story is a, it's a long journey of engaging with the Word of God that for me does feel alive and active and sharp like a sword, which Hebrews 12, 4.12 tells me. But over the years, I've learned that the Bible isn't the fourth member of the Godhead, even though it does contain some of the most encouraging and healing words I've ever read. That it certainly can be sharp as it cuts through the crap in my life, but it's not a sword to be used against other people. For me, the Bible is alive in a different way. So first, though, let me go back to when I first um, became a follower of Jesus. This was back um, when I was on Okinawa, where I was born and raised. Um, the Bible has been an important focus in my life from the very beginning. There was no way that I could have anticipated becoming a Christian as a junior in high school. Up until high school, I wanted nothing to do with Jesus or church. Um, I had a little taste of it as a child. My dad would drop uh, me and my sister off at this Lutheran church um, to go to Sunday school, and then he would pick us up afterwards, and he never went to church himself. It was just me and my sister. And after a while, after a couple years, I think, I am not remember exactly how long, but the Bible stories got really, really boring, and they didn't make any sense to me. So I just flat out told my dad, I'm not going anymore. <laughs> and fortunately, he complied. That was good. Um, so it was a small miracle that I showed up um, at a youth group meeting one Friday evening with some friends, uh, much less pray that, um, you know, that salvation prayer. To tell you the truth, I really didn't know what I had done, except the next morning I had two very strange urges. One was that I wanted to go to church, and the second one was I wanted to find a Bible and start reading it. Now, at first, I thought um, an alien had invaded my body. Um, I didn't know what was going on here. Um, but from the very start, there was something about the Bible that called to me, that urged me to keep going deeper into this book that was going to tell me something about this relationship with God. Now, I left Japan and my family after graduating, and I went to uh, UC San Diego. And there I got involved with a campus ministry. I don't know if you've done this, but... Uh, in that ministry, you have these little discipleship booklets, like a series of them, and you fill in the blank lines as you study the Bible. How many of you have done those booklets? Oh, I did them all. <laughs> I did them all. And, um, but the problem was that they weren't deep enough for me, and I was really hungry for more. So uh, after two years of studying science to become a marine biologist, I gave it all up, and I transferred up here to Portland to go to Bible college. Now, at Bible College, I found out that I was really, really good at dissecting the text, and I created some killer outlines from the Bible. Except, by the time I graduated, I sensed that there was something wrong with my spiritual life. God became more and more distant, and seven years later, I was an atheist. 
I'm going to make a quick jump here, but with the help of a friend, I did find God again. Um, and I've shared that story more in detail uh, back in our series on prayer. But as I um, started this work of trying to reconstruct my faith, I had a hard time opening my Bible to try and read it and study it. I really didn't know how. A few years later, I made a really radical decision. I enrolled in seminary. Um, and honestly, I had a lot of fear going in because I was afraid I was going to lose my faith again. I had tried to analyze what um, I had done wrong, how I lost it in the first place because I didn't want to make the same mistake. But it wasn't until I started studying the Old Testament in seminary that I realized that I had fallen into biblicism. I discovered that those rules of interpretation um, were grounded in Western culture, and that was completely foreign to the Bible. Now, the seminary I went to was definitely into biblicism, <laughs> but it was kind of funny that through my studies, I actually found my way out of it. Um, that's, that's kind of the overview of my experience, and I, what I want to do is go a little deeper by using two metaphors that mean a lot to me. Um, they're found in this art piece that I have hanging in my bathroom to remind me of those metaphors every morning. Now, the first one I want to talk about is the tree. This is, metaphor became pretty significant to me at the time when my friend helped me to find God again. And part of the story that I didn't share back then um, included this day when I sat in a room in my house and it has this, had this window that looked out into our backyard. And some of you who have been to our house know that we have a little mini forest with a lot of tall fir trees. And I sat there um, trying to learn how to pray again. And as I did, um, I began to kind of stare at this one fir tree. And as I kept staring, after a few moments, I had this thought that entered my brain. <laughs> And it said, Harriet, someday you're going to grow strong and tall like that tree. And at the time, I don't think I fully understood what that meant, but it felt good. And it gave me hope that um, whatever was happening between me and God was going to last. So years later, when my seminary studies um, opened this world with God that I had never seen before, and amazing things started to happen. Um, it felt like I was becoming that strong tree. Not because I was analyzing the Bible better, but it's because I was getting better at seeing a more loving and compassionate God, a God that was beyond and between the words on the, on the pages that I was reading. Now, the tree is a, a really popular metaphor in the Bible. In fact, we're all invited to be trees. Remember in Genesis, I'm going to start from the beginning, in Genesis, after the first man, Adam, was formed, and before Eve comes on the scene, there's a special garden that's created by God. So let me read from Genesis 2, starting with verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. Genesis now is the only place where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is mentioned. But it's the most, uh, well, it's the one that most people remember, right? 
Is this the one where Adam and Eve are forbidden to eat the fruit? But they do, and the fallout is pretty bad. They get kicked out of the garden, and then they're barred from the tree of life. So the tree that's forbidden gets all the press and sermons, and you hardly notice the tree of life, but it's actually mentioned several times throughout the Bible. The last time it's mentioned is at the end in the book of Revelation in chapter 22. And there a connection is made with Genesis. Then the angel showed me, and that's the Apostle John who's writing Revelation, the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So what you get are bookends to the story of God, and each of those bookends mentions the tree of life. But in between Genesis and Revelation, there's another reference to the tree of life, but there's an interesting twist on it, and it's found in Proverbs 3. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. Then down to verse 18, she, or wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. Okay, now stay with me because I'm going to take you one more place. And that's a connection that's made between the tree and wisdom in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is called a, a wisdom psalm. And it's considered a prototype for all the wisdom, uh, wisdom psalms that follow. I want to read the psalm first from the message translation, mainly because it, it always brings a smile to my face. How well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You don't slink along Dead End Road. You don't go to Smart Mouth College. Instead, you thrill to God's word. You chew on scripture day and night. You're a tree replanted in Eden, bearing fresh fruit every month, never dropping a leaf, always in blossom. You're not at all like the wicked who are mere windblown dust without defense in court, unfit company for innocent people. God charts the road you take. The road they take is Skid Row. <laughs> I think Eugene Peterson kind of gets a little carried away with his translation there, but I love it. Um, but I'm going to reread a part of, of this psalm that's in the NIV, which is what I'm more used to. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The psalm suggests that we become like trees, trees of wisdom which bear fruit and never go through a fall or winter season. There's a connection between the sacred text and being this kind of tree. This wisdom helps us to become trees of life, with leaves that offer healing. There's a way to navigate our broken world with wisdom rather than categories of good and evil. There's a way to be true to Scripture and be trees of life. Now, right now, I want to introduce Amy from the Cupcake Girls. 
an organization that offers leaves for healing in a very particular space. This is Amy. <laughs> Hi. Um, I want a blanket trigger warning really quickly. Um, the topic I'm about to talk about contains domestic violence, violence, and um, sex trafficking. So I'm so sorry if that will trigger you this morning. Um, I went on a run with my dog after taking a job with Wyden and Kennedy back in 2009. It was four in the morning, um, and I lived on 11th and Jefferson downtown in Portland. Does anybody know where that is? So my dog and I, we start running, and I see this man, and he's holding this woman, and she's crying, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, poor, junky little kitties. Um, and then I realize he's holding her with his left arm and punching her in the side with his right arm. I ran backwards to the Safeway, which is about a block behind me, because I didn't have a cell phone on me at the time, only an iPod. It wasn't in the days of iPhone yet. It was, I was way too poor for one of those. Um, and I asked the security guard to call the police, and he said, she's a prostitute. They're going to arrest her anyway. I said some expletives and then ran back to my apartment to grab my cell phone and called 911 and then waited for the police to arrive. When they finally did, the woman and the man were gone. Um, I asked to speak to those men's supervisors and those men's supervisors and quickly learned about the chain of command with the police department. They're not called managers, they're called lieutenants and sergeants and chief of police and I was sitting across from each other a week later. Uh, she told me, Amy, if you're wanting to do anything, you're gonna have to get involved with the grassroots nonprofit. We can't help you because of legislation. We'd have to arrest prostitutes if they are prostituting on the street, even if they were being assaulted. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever been in prison, but once you're arrested, there's a slew of things that can happen, including losing your children, um, including losing your job. Um, lots of lots of things can happen. So I worked as hard as I could to find an organization that was doing on-the-ground work, um, and I found one called the Cupcake Girls. I started working with them two months after they moved to Portland back in 2011, 2012. I'm looking at Paul because he was there with me. <laughs> um, and yeah, we, we started asking people, what do you want? How can we help you? How can we empower you? Is there a way that we can make your life better? People were saying things like, my kid has an abscess and I can't take them to the dentist. I'm scared that they're gonna find out I'm a sex worker. And so we'd go and we'd find a pediatrician that would help them. Um, people would say, I have a broken foot and I am dancing in the clubs and I don't know what to do. I, I need to make money for my kids. And we'd say, awesome, let's go find you a doctor. Let's find you a dentist. Let's find you an immigration lawyer because you're about to be kicked out of the country if you don't stay with your pimp. Um, so these are conversations that we have every single day at the Cupcake Girls. We're in the prevention and aftercare of sex trafficking. Um, and something that I love to tell people, especially my Trump-fearing parents when um, they found out what I was doing, was, uh, hey, Jesus was here for a super short time, and guess what he did? He hung out with sex workers. Um, so I'm not going to take up too much time, but we're going to, Emily Martin, or Emily Haven and I are going to be across the street at the Chili Cook-Off, cannot wait, and we'd love to sell you cupcakes and talk more about what we're doing here in Portland. Thank you. You know, as people of God, um, we're meant to offer leaves of healing and thriving, but I suspect that uh, there are a lot of withered leaves on our branches 
that need to die and fall to the ground and be replaced by new leaves that are shaped by a different reading of Scripture. There's something I'd like you to do. Hopefully, um, and if you don't have to, if you don't want to, but if you got a paper leaf, go ahead and pull that out. If you have, don't have one, we have more here. It's, yeah, Katie's coming up with a basket for those that didn't get a leaf. Um, forgot to get pencils for everybody, but hopefully you have something if you, if you have a pen or a pencil. Um, I invite you to write on this leaf specific verses or teachings or issues in the Bible that have caused you um, shame or fear or grief because of the way that it was used against you. We're going to take a minute for you to think about your leaf and what you might write on it. And then go ahead and write anything having to do with the Bible that has caused you damage or pain. So let's go ahead and take a moment of silence while you do that. Okay, if you're not done, no worries. <laughs> you can just go ahead and keep making notes um, as I go on with my second metaphor. But hang on to it because there's something that I want you to do with it later, okay? So in each of the passages that I read, um, what, did you notice that there was something else that was mentioned besides the tree? Water, or a river, right? You notice that there was a river, which I also have in this. It's kind of back there, but that's what that blue water represents is a river. For me, um, the river is a great metaphor for something that Kurt and Leroy uh, pointed out last week. As we grow older, our understanding of the Bible changes. What we believed before may shift because of the experiences we have or the people we meet. Leroy shared how his belief that women should not be in the pulpit <laughs> completely flipped after he met some gifted women, and especially his wife Donna. She is a preacher woman. <laughs> the relationship with the Bible is like a river that's always moving, flowing toward something that is bigger or different. There are the scary waterfalls to drop down when you're not sure what to believe. There are the times that you can't see around the bend, but you know you need to change direction. There are the rough rapids and dangerous rocks, passages that don't make any sense, or they feel threatening to you. Some of them you just are not going to be able to get through, so it's better to just go around them, just avoid them. That's okay. Then there are the deep hidden pools that you discover, where you are refreshed and you're revived. That's been my experience with the Bible over the years since seminary. There were times, though, when I, um, I was really stubborn and I held on to my literal readings of the Bible while the Spirit was like nudging me to flow and change my beliefs. That happened with the passages on homosexuality. I would be that huge boulder in the middle of the river during a spring run, and the only effect I had was to create a lot of foam and turmoil. One morning at a, a women's retreat that I, was atten I had attended, I found myself 
seated on this rock, and it was, it was right next to this very slow-moving stream. And I remember it was like October, so it wasn't rushing. It was very slow. And it was so peaceful and slow that I could see straight down, really clearly, straight down to the bottom, and there were these colorful river rocks there. And I could even see the little fishies swimming in place right above them. My Bible was open to Psalm 46, and I read this. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. And then later in the psalm I read, Be still and know that I am God. That river image like just jumped off the page at me, and in that moment, I knew I didn't want to be that boulder creating foam anymore. I wanted to be like one of those river rocks at the bottom, at peace with God, trusting instead of fighting God. That's what these gemstones represent for me in this picture. But I still had to work through some of my issues with the Bible. Later, my view of homosexuality changed did change, but it wasn't through any deep study of Romans 1. It was actually the story in Acts 10 of the Apostle Peter struggling to accept Gentiles into the church. And what convinced him to change his mind? It wasn't that strange dream that he had where God said, do not call anything impure what God has made clean. But it was when he had this face-to-face with Cornelius the Gentile, and he saw clear evidence of the Holy Spirit in him. Peter's story became my story as I met beautiful Christians within the queer community. And I was able to affirm them in their whole identity and what they brought to the church, just as the Gentiles were affirmed and accepted but not required to become Jews in order to be in the church. It was after I released this boulder and changed in my belief that I found Cascade. That's when I started coming here. The rereading of Peter's story was one of the many uh, surprising um, discoveries that I made about the Bible. Um, That helped me to flow like a river in my Bible interpretation. But I began to see how changes in belief and practice is actually normal within the Bible itself. Another helpful discovery in the Bible was the first to expose the fallacy of Biblicism to me. This one at first felt like a dangerous rapids um, that I should avoid, and this relates to what Kirk talked about, the, uh, the differences in how Judas died. In my Old Testament studies, I learned that the chroniclers of Jewish history did not have accuracy at the top of their list of standards um, as Westerners do or think they do. Um, I learned that there's no such thing as an objective historical fact. How many times have you um, reminisced with a sibling and said, hey, I don't remember it that way? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've been reading a biography of Frederick Douglass And I found out that Abraham Lincoln was not the white ally that the history books I read presented him to be. 
Bias history happens in the Bible too. Now, most people, I did my studies in Chronicles, okay, and most people tend to skip that book uh, because it's, uh, okay, I'm nerdy, all right, this is where I get really nerdy, <laughs> because it sounds like a repeat, I mean, a total repeat of the book of Kings, which is the account of Israel's kings, right? But if you read Chronicles closely, um, there are some major differences from Kings and even some contradictions, for example, there's nothing about David's rape of Bathsheba in Chronicles. I mean, he's like a saint in Chronicles. I mean, he's, yeah, is like completely different kind of character there. A good king in one account is evil in the other and vice versa. They kind of like flip between the two history books. And then there's a way bigger emphasis on the temple and priests than there is uh, in kings. But here's why they're different. Kings was written before Israel went into exile in Babylon. Chronicles was written after the exile. And after the exile, the Jewish people returned to a devastated land with no temple and no continuing line of Davidic kings. Their identity as a nation was threatened. It's within this social, spiritual, and political shift that the historians deconstructed their past in order to explain their present. Their account wasn't driven by a commitment to historical accuracy, but by a theological crisis. They had to explain why it looked like God dropped the ball on the promises to Israel. So this Jewish priority of theological intent over historical accuracy was, was really eye-opening for me. And then when I studied the New Testament, account, New Testament accounts, uh, the gospel accounts, I found out that the gospel writers have the same kind of priority. If you read the story of Mary pouring the perfume over Jesus' head from Matthew 26 and then compare it with the version in John 12, there are some conflicting information. Matthew places this story two days before Passover, and John places it six days before Passover. And the story itself has some differences. Biblicists will do all kinds of mental gymnastics to harmonize the stories, but this wasn't a concern to the original authors. And it's based on a wrong assumption. Biblicists argue that if the facts are not accurate, um, they have to be consistent, then the authority of Scripture is compromised. But this had never been the thinking of the Jews or of the early church or even the church all the way up to the um, 1800s when Biblicism became a thing. You know, Biblicism is pretty new, actually. It started in the 1800s. Matthew and John didn't concern themselves with trying to get the day of the week as if the get it right, as if the reputation of God depended on it. Instead, they placed it where it most served their theological point. The point of this story was different between Matthew and John. So all of this is to say that the accuracy, the insistence on accuracy was never a high value for the biblical writers or the readers, which means that we find God in the story more than we find God in the facts. It means that interpretation is more like an art than it is a science lab. Another example of how my interpretation of the Bible 
shifted has to do with trying to understand it from my perspective as a woman with desires and gifts that were assigned only to men in the church. I struggled to answer why the Bible was silent on patriarchy. Kurt likes the story from Numbers 27 of how the daughters of Zelophehad went to Moses and challenged the inheritance laws that favored the sons. So Moses goes to God, and God agrees. It's unfair, and he allows the daughters to inherit this property from their dead father. Okay, so the story seems to be an overt um, critique of patriarchy, except the laws were never changed. That's what puzzled me. Here was a perfect opportunity to change the social structure, and God didn't do it. But I was able to resolve my disappointment when I noticed that there's a pattern in the Bible. Some issues, especially social issues, are addressed in more subversive ways, even though it also may mean that the changes come about more slowly. Okay? This has been true about slavery, and it's true about patriarchy. Ambiguity does not mean agreement. Example from the New Testament, Jesus may have picked only men for being the 12 core disciples, and there's a reason why that's not misogyny, okay, that's there. But for Luke to officially record in his gospel account that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his teachings was subversive because only men were allowed to do that back then. Now, one subversion in the Old Testament involves a Hebrew literary device called a chiasm, which appears in the stories around Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 through 22. Chiasms are found throughout the Bible. And I was tempted to be nerdy about this one too, <laughs> but I decided that I was going to use the great Berenstein's book, Bears in the Night to explain what a chiasm is. Okay. So if you've read this, but there's seven little bears that are laying in, laying in bed at night, and they hear this noise outside their window and decide to investigate. So they go out the window, down the tree, over the wall, under the bridge, around the lake, between the rocks, through the woods, and up Spook Hill. And there at the top, they're spooked by this huge owl, and they turn around and they rush down <laughs> Spook Hill, through the woods, between the rocks, around the lake, under the bridge, over the wall, up the tree, and into the window. And the book ends with, back in bed. This whole story is a chiasm, <laughs> where the journey in has a journey out in reverse order, and you end up at the same place that you started. That's what a chiasm does, that structure. For Jewish writers, that top of the hill, that turning point or the center of the chiasm identifies the main point or central story that the author is trying to communicate. Now, without going into all the details, Genesis chapters 12 through 22 are set up as a chiasm where the events in Abraham's life heading towards the center story are similar going out, but it's in reverse order. And guess what's at the center? The turning point is chapter 16, and there we find the story of two women, Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Hagar, her slave. The Genesis writer built a structure dominated by the narratives of men, but at the center, the hinge, 
is the story of Sarah and Hagar, and Abraham is actually kept in the background. In fact, the writer reveals that Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah and that he gave Sarah full autonomy in handling the, the tough situation that they were in. The structure is clear. It's no accident the events were laid out this way. It was intentional. Learning of this chiasm helped me to believe that the stories of women within a patriarchal system matter to God. It helped me believe that as I struggled most of my life as a Christian woman in church patriarchal systems, my story mattered to God. I matter to God. So this is my journey. Leaving Biblicism has changed my wrestling with the Bible from this battle to now it feels like an adventure as I read. To experience God is to be both the tree planted in the goodness of God and the river flowing in my understanding of the Bible and what it means to me today. My desire for you is that you can experience God and the Bible in the same way. As we prepare for communion and the band comes up when the baby goes down, <laughs> Yeah. As the band comes up, and we're going to um, uh, transition to a communion table, um, the communion table might be a good place to start for some of you in considering rereading the Bible. Jesus was crucified because of a system that abused and weaponized the sacred text and misrepresented God. But that didn't stop God from subverting that system and insisting that death wouldn't stop God's love and life from flowing into our broken existence. I'd like to suggest that the table is a place to let go, to let die what needs to die in your understanding of the Bible that has hurt and abused you. That this table can be the beginning of a resurrected hope. That the Bible has something to say that is truly life-giving. So I, I invite you to come uh, with your paper leaf and leave it on the communion table as a symbolic act of that hope. But if you need more time with your leaf, that's okay. You can keep it and hang on to it and take the time to consider how that relationship with the Bible might be different if you read it differently, if God was truly good.